This is Democracy, a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to focus on a very immediate issue, an issue with a long historical tale, but an issue that affects many of our listeners, in fact, today, the challenges of finding an affordable renting situation in our society today. Many people are struggling throughout our cities, Austin, New York City, San Francisco, many, many other places, to be able to afford rent, to be able to rent a apartment or a house in a way that's affordable based on their income and based on their circumstances. And we are fortunate today to be joined by someone who's doing some of the most important work on this topic. She's devoted, it looks like, much of her career to studying these issues and taking action to empower renters and empower them to make a change and find better legal protection for their needs. This is Shoshana Krieger. She's the project director at BASTA, which is uh, an acronym for Building and Strengthen- Strengthening Tenant Action, based here in Austin and part of the Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. Shoshana has a strong background in this. What BASTA does is it works with Austin renters and their neighbors to ensure that all Austinites have access to safe and affordable housing by facilitating the development of tenant associations, which is important, so tenants have their voices heard, and building renter power in Austin. And, and again, this is a phenomenon we're seeing across across cities, and I know Boston's connected to that. They target slumlords who profit off of renting substandard properties, the conditions of which negatively impact the health of families. Before working here in Austin, Shoshana was a staff attorney at Neighborhood Legal Services of Los Angeles County, so she worked on these issues there. And she was also a tenants' rights organizer at the good old Lower East Side. She has a JD and an MA in urban planning from UCLA, so she's clearly probably more qualified to talk about these issues than almost anyone else. Shoshana, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we turn to our discussion with Shoshana, of course, we have uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. What's your poem title today, Zachary? They say a house is just a metaphor. I can't wait to hear it. Let's hear it. They say a house is just a metaphor, that home is where the heart is, as if the end of poverty is merely where the start is. When young, we learn a home is what you pledge allegiance to, that poets find a house among their boundless lovers' arches, as if truth is merely that which we give credence to, as if a house is just an artifact we misconstrue. But a house is not an artifact, a flag, or an embrace. A homeland's not a homeland if you cannot find a place. A house may be four walls, a toilet, and a bed, but you've no hope of poetry if your young ones are not fed. And if we can't think of a better way than what's been said, then the metaphor can be put to sleep. Instead, give the house to the mom on the street. Mm. Powerful, Zachary. What, what is your poem about? Well, my poem is really about getting beyond the very superficial uh, language and euphemisms we use to describe the housing crisis in the United States and really getting to the heart of the matter, which is that people just can't find a place to live safely 
and and stay healthy in our society. Right, right, right. And and you you've made this personal as well as systemic at the same time in your description. Um, Shoshana, how should we begin to understand this issue? Uh, a lot of my students uh, have told me that they struggle with with rent, uh, but then others who live in my neighborhood where we're homeowners often don't know about this. How, how do we explain this crisis to people who are not immediately affected by it? Well, I think one of the things which we've seen over the past uh, few decades is an increase, uh, a dramatic increase in folks who are housing insecure um, and folks who are paying um, not just more than a third of their income towards rent, which is what uh, the federal government would call being a uh, housing cost burden, but are even paying more than 50% of their rent, uh, uh, 50% of their income towards rent. And so I think that even though there are many, many folks who are not directly impacted by the affordable housing crisis right now, um, in the next five or 10 years, uh, likely those folks are going to encounter loved ones in their lives um, who are are being impacted by this crisis um, or themselves are going to be directly impacted by this crisis, Um, whether that be uh, kids who are uh, graduating (laughs) from Um, high school and college and going out on their own and trying to find a place to live and being confronted with skyrocketing rents. So they have to uh, go and live with mom and dad Um, or um, other um, loved ones and family members uh, who uh, their housing cost burden uh, might be uh, in the form of property (laughs) taxes and um, mortgage payments and um, their house could be foreclosed upon. Um, and that we are seeing the trend lines are uh, in the direction of unaffordability, sadly, not in the direction of affordability. And, and how many families are affected? Do we have some approximation? Uh, we do. I do not have those numbers. Okay. Um, those numbers memorized. Uh, and, and, and they're growing. The, the number of people affected, you said the trend lines are growing, right? The trend lines are growing. Um, the National Low Income um, Housing Coalition um, <laughs> just put out um, their uh, annual uh, numbers on how much would it, uh, how much in each city uh, would you have to make to be able to afford a one bedroom or two bedroom apartment? And here in Austin, I think it was really it was twenty five or twenty six dollars an hour would have to be the minimum wage to be able to afford an apartment here. And of course, our minimum wage is the federal minimum wage. Right, right. So so under that um, analysis, I mean, it might even be hard for a school teacher or a firefighter, uh, let alone someone working in fast food, to be able to afford a, a just decent small place to live in a city like Austin, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. And you have, you know, uh, $15 an hour minimum wage campaigns and living wage campaigns, which are so important. Um, but just hearing, seeing that disconnect, right? That even even struggling to get fifteen dollar an hour standards nationally um, is something which is still quite a fight. And then when we actually look at the numbers uh, for the cost of housing, uh, there's a disconnect. So if we can't even get ourselves to $15 an hour as a minimum wage, when our housing costs in Austin um, are over 25, would be over $25 an hour you'd have to make, um, there's uh, something really wrong with that situation. And we're a very long way from solving um, the affordability problem. 
So how has COVID uh, exacerbated this crisis? I think COVID has laid bare um, the crisis, um, that it it has exacerbated it, but a lot of what COVID has done in the conversations and the headlines which we're seeing around this crisis are actually pointing to a crisis which has existed for a long time, um, but we have, as a society, uh, just conveniently ignored. Um, COVID has impacted the lowest wage workers the most. Um, so I think that this 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 uh, there's a connection right between um, poverty and the housing crisis and uh, high housing costs. And that for COVID, with COVID, uh, lots of folks who uh, we work with day in and day out <laughs> had their hours reduced, had um, had their they lost their jobs um, for periods of time, and they were living paycheck to paycheck. So they may have at this point rebounded. They maybe have employment now, but they had a month or two or three or four where they were without work or had um, had fewer hours. And because they don't have savings, and because it's impossible to save given the wages they currently earn, that amount of rental arrears continues to persist. And, and building on that, Shoshana, I wanted to also ask about the uh, the freeze we had in Texas uh, in the spring, uh, because I know your organization, Basta, was heroic in trying to bring water to people. Even some of my students were recipients uh, of uh, your heroic work and help. Uh, but how did that affect the situation? People in uh, units they could barely afford, then having to go a week without water, without power. What, what consequence did that have that you've seen? Well, I mean, it, there was the immediate aftermath of uh, just widespread uh, water outages at multifamily properties throughout the city, which persisted long after um, water was restored officially on the maps uh, that Austin Water was putting out. Because the issue at that point wasn't that the utility wasn't providing the water. The issue was that there were broken pipes and other infrastructure issues at the properties, which was causing there not to be water. I mean, there were some properties where it was three weeks a month that they didn't have water and landlords did uh, very little to try to get their residents water. And instead, uh, the nonprofit sector uh, with assistance from government um, were the primary uh, providers of water during that time. And those landlords where the outages were three weeks, four weeks, um, there were a lot of there was a lot of damage at those properties. Um, and the fact that it happened at those particular properties was also no accident. Um, though what we've seen is that even now, five months after the storm, we're working at properties uh, where there was uh, there was significant damage. Um, and most of these properties also had long-standing outages. And these were properties which were in disrepair long before the storm hit. And so that when then we had the winter storm, these properties weren't able to be resilient against the storm because infrastructure um, and maintenance um, had, uh, infrastructure had not been maintained. And this all in the end, I think, does uh, connect to this affordability uh, crisis and the affordability problem because one of the reasons that landlords are able to get away with having properties in such terrible condition um, is that they're able to find renters who are willing to live in those conditions because there are no other options. 
Um, and that a lot of these properties are also in areas which are gentrifying, which means landlords are making a very specific calculation um, and are speculating and are saying, why am I going to put in um, money to uh, to make repairs at this property right now when I know five years from now I'm going to flip it and there's going to be a total gut rehab. So I'm not really invest investing in something which is long term. It's better to just not make the repairs, take the rent because I have a plenty of people who will rent, and then wait it out to the month to the moment um, when I can I can cash in and make bank. Um, I think your your initial question was how did um, you know how has that exacerbated the housing crisis you know on top of the pandemic and I think just on, in terms of lived experience of renters um, you have folks who were already um, living uh, paycheck to paycheck if that many already had arrears because of the pandemic and so landlords um, used existing loopholes. There were Austin still has many local protections on evictions um, because of COVID, but there are some loopholes in those protections um, in the event of a natural disaster. So we saw landlords using those loopholes just to get the tenants who are behind on rent out. Uh, so the sides up those protections, and then just tenants had uh, you know much uh, had less of a safety net uh, because they had less savings. Their family members had less savings, um, and their friends and their community to be able to make a move to be able um, to get out. And in Texas, there are very few protections for tenants who find themselves um, in a damaged unit. Um, and landlords really can almost unilaterally terminate leases with very little notice to tenants and tenants are just out of luck. Um, so that that compounds um, that compounds kind of the injustice which uh, tenants experience during the yeah. storm. No, and, and, and I will say I saw this firsthand. Uh, one of my graduate students, this is someone in the Ph.D. program uh, who's a high performing, highly educated person. She was in one of the. Uh, units you just described, uh, a uh, overpriced, under-maintained uh, apartment complex on the east side of Austin. Uh, she lived there. She lives there with her husband because they couldn't find something else that was affordable and close to campus. And um, I think she was three weeks without water. And what was most disconcerting to me is there was no communication from the landlord um, and very little effort to repair things. Uh, finally, I convinced uh, my student to call her city council person uh, and the city council person's office then contacted the landlord and magically the day after they came and repaired the water and had the water running. Um, and it, it shouldn't have to work that way. Um, and, and, and I think it reflects what you're saying. And, and here is someone who's, you know, at what we would call upper middle class. This is not even a, a poor person struggling, and we can only imagine what others uh, are, are going through. Uh, Shoshana, in some ways, this is an old story, right? As historians, we know landlords in the United States and in other societies have always tried to exploit they have an incentive in a certain way, in many cases, to exploit uh, tenants. Um, it is an old English story as well. What has made it worse in recent years? What are the sources or why have we backtracked from what we thought was progress we had made uh, through the Federal Housing Authority and other entities in the 70s and 80s? What, what's happened recently? Well, I, I think you're right that this is an old story. And I mean, this is a story of capitalism. And this is the story of us 
as a society seeing human not as a human seeing housing not as a human right um but as a commodity um i think in recent years though what we've seen is a influx of global capital into the rental housing market and we've also seen um a increase in uh, corporate ownership of rental housing. Um, And we saw that in the single family um, sector right after the financial crisis of the 2000s, um, where we saw some, uh, a few very big players just buying up uh, recently foreclosed properties um, and becoming uh, one of the largest landlords. So taking uh, properties out of the kind of mom and pop uh, rental market and having these large corporate landlords of single family housing. And we also see that in the multifamily market. And so what that means is you're just that the landlords then are even more disconnected from their properties because oftentimes the landlords are just these murky entities, which are very hard to even uh, find who is in control of, let alone hold the individuals controlling those companies accountable. Um, and it also means that um, you know, when you have landlords who are in California or Vancouver um, or Nashville, um, I'm just rattling off some of the places uh, that where the landlords of properties we're organizing live. They're so far away. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to hold them accountable. Um, that you were talking about the call from, you know, your student um, to the council member, and then the council member got involved. Well, it's a lot harder to get for a council member to even advocate for a tenant if the landlord is very far away because the landlord just doesn't have as much to lose, right? Um, and so it makes it it makes them even less accountable. Um, and it makes housing into um, more of a commodity and less of a home, right? That it's not in the kind of the kind of quaint picture we have of a landlord-tenant relationship is a, you know, oh, one guy who has, you know, a couple of extra properties on his hand, and then he comes by and collects the rent every month, and he sees the the kids grow, and, you know, it's he, he has this kind of benevolent relationship, and oh, if that family's struggling, right, because he has a relationship with them, he'll give them a bit more time, um, and he's a human, um, but that's, increasingly not the relationship of uh, landlords to tenants in America. Right. It, it sounds more like a call center where you're, you're, you're the tenant, just like the person, you know, using the, the computer that's not working and you're calling the call center and you're waiting and you can't get anyone on the phone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Zachary, you had a question on there? Yeah. My question is really, why has the, um, the, the, the media, if we want to treat it as sort of one large entity, seem to ignore this problem for so long. I mean, it seems to have had such a huge influence, not just on individual members of our society, but our political discourse. I mean, just the fact that our president was the child of slumlords, as as Jeremy read in, in your in your bio. Um, I think that, I mean, it's, it's a really good question. I, I think a lot of that has to do with with classism and racism um that so in austin 70 percent of black austinites are runners and 65 percent of latinx austinites are renters and then 55 percent of all austinites are renters so we're a majority runner city but a disproportionate number 
of folks who are communities of color are renters and also poorer people are renters. So 75% of Austinites who earn less than $75,000 a year are renters. And so with just like, you know, political power, right. And why kind of our, uh, our poverty programs are what they are, right. Um, There, there are many uh, larger kind of systemic uh, reasons for that. I think it's similar to this affordability crisis of that those in the media um, are, there's a disconnect in terms of uh, race and class of those reporting on stories um, than uh, kind of the stories which need to be covered. And what do you think about the argument that's often made here in Austin and in other cities that uh, the problem is a problem of supply and that the solution is in the market, which I think is something different from what you're saying, of just building more stuff? And this is often the argument made for gentrification. It's the argument developers make all the time. Uh, what's your response to that argument? I think that that argument is a simplistic argument. I think both sides of that argument are simplistic arguments because obviously we need more supply, but supply alone isn't going to be the magical um, solution. Um, you know, we through, through the history of rental housing in this country, uh, landlords haven't just acted benevolently because uh, they could. You know, we had tenements, um, you know, sure, 100 sure. years ago, right? Um, and so, I mean, regulation is um, a key to curbing bad behavior across the board and humans, um, you know, humans are humans. And then especially in a capitalist society um, in a society in which we value individualism over almost anything, anything else. Um, I, I, I think that there are ways to get supply while at the same time ensuring that a certain percentage of uh, that housing is affordable, but oftentimes overlooked in, um, conversations around affordability and how are we producing more affordable housing is also what are the standards for tenants um, in that housing which is produced? Uh, Because in just baseline uh, tax credit housing, which is uh, most of the uh, low-income affordable housing which is uh, built um, today, there are there are very few protections, additional protections for tenants um, other than what exists under normal state laws. So in a state like Texas, um, if you are in a, a low-income housing tax credit unit, you don't have a right to organize with your neighbors. Um, and so that's something we see all the time where folks we're working with end up getting kicked out of the properties, um, or we get kicked out of the properties which they're at, um, because they don't like that tenants are pointing out the fact that repairs are needed and that the manager is a bully and that the towing policies um, are unfair and likely unlawful. Um, And we as a society could say, hey, if we are subsidizing um, this housing, we want to make sure there's a standard set of protections. And if a municipality is saying, okay, we're going to upzone um, this property in exchange for you giving a certain percentage of units, you know, allocating a certain percentage of units as affordable, part of that conversation should also be, okay, what are the protections the tenants living in that property are going to have? 
Um, because really, if we're talking about like longer systems change and how are we shifting power and building power, which is fundamentally what uh, BASTA does and our lens is about with everything we do, it's about how are we building power long term. That means we need to be uh, shifting some of the structures, not just saying, OK, we have a few more units. If the folks in those units can't organize, if the folks in those units can't demand, don't have leverage to be able to demand repairs, aren't allowed to renew their lease, um, there aren't actual caps on the rent increases, then those affordable units are pretty meaningless. Right. And 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 I think, Shoshana, that, that echoes beautifully one of the main themes of our podcast each week, which is that democracy is a concept means that there is an essential role for government, local, uh, state, and national to play in regulating uh, the interactions between different actors in the market, that an unregulated market often becomes undemocratic. And one of the lessons from Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, our inspiration for the podcast, is that there's a very positive and essential role for government to play in a democracy. I think that leads uh, directly into the sort of last set of questions we had, which is what are you through BASTA trying to do and what do you see as the solutions, if there are any, or at least the, the elements of progress we can make going forward? Um, so BASA, as the solution, BASA sees organizing is the solution, um, that organizing and engaging folks and engaging folks who are the most directly impacted um, into crafting and advancing the solutions. And that if we aren't engaging new folks, if we aren't building if we aren't building power, both tenant power and then political power, um, then we aren't going to be able um, to demand the necessary, well, we may be able to demand, but we're not going to be able to successfully demand and have those demands met, um, uh, regu regulatory changes, uh, which are needed. Um, and at the end of the day, having community control over the, the development process. And when I'm saying community control, it's what well, community control is thrown around all the time and oftentimes is used um, by, uh, by homeowners and single family neighborhoods to say, we are the community, right? And who is community? And that's a, like a huge question. But when I'm saying community control, I'm talking about the people who are living in the multifamily house, right. who are renters, right? Like a, a, a broader community of folks being able to have autonomy over the places they're living. And that kind of goes back to the poem at the beginning of this podcast, right? What's a home and what's a house? And I would say that to have a home, a house, which is a home, you need to have autonomy over it. And so we're working to organize at individual properties um, communities of tenants who then can collectively prioritize the issues they want to work on and collectively strategize on how to win campaigns which prioritize those issues. And that's really in the weeds on the ground. And a lot of times the campaigns we're doing are about one particular manager who everyone hates and doesn't treat <laughs> people with dignity, or it's about a one property we're at the big thing which is getting everyone is wind chimes. They're not allowed to put up wind chimes. Um, and that says a lot about what the, the feeling of not uh, having autonomy in your home, right? <laughs> what people want is to be able to be like, I want to be able to have plants and I want to be able to kind of 
have my own mark on my home. And those those issues are a long way from broader, how are we making sure that um, government is regulating the market? But for BOSS, engaging folks at that level, meaning people really where they're at, is the first step to bringing them into a larger movement where we're having those conversations. And that's where some of our citywide work is at. Um, but you have to do all of it. You can't just go into those communities and be like, okay, like, let's talk about community control over the land. People are going to be like, yo, I have like this light in front of my house is broken and there's been two robberies there in the last three weeks. Like, don't talk to me about like these larger, you know, amorphous sure. issues. Sure. Talk to me about immediate solutions. It, it sounds so much like bread and butter civil rights organizing where you're you're connecting with the community, you're building a beloved community and you're motivating people to come together to make the demands for their basic humanity that are being denied. Uh, it's a very powerful historical way to raise awareness because it's not about debating one policy detail or another. It's about the humanity of those who are who are suffering in these units right now. Uh, it's a very powerful way to, to approach things. Are you are you finding success? We are finding success. Um, I, I think it's you have to you have to embrace the small victories and the small victories is what fuels larger victories um, at North Lamar Mobile Home Park, uh, which is a 68 um, lot mobile home park in kind of north central Austin. Um, last In the middle of the pandemic, uh, we supported that association in purchasing um, their community as a co-op from their owner. Um, and that was after a five-year campaign. Um, and that they now have control over their community. There are headaches with that control, um, but they, you know, they do. Uh, we're supporting right now an, another association where um, there, uh, the families uh, were about to be displaced because of the winter storm damage. Five months later, the landlords were saying they had to leave, and uh, the land after the tenants organized, um, the te- the landlord withdrew those notices of termination, and now we're working on getting a temporary relocation process, which is working right. And that, and in that process, we're developing relationships with people, and folks are. Um, from other campaigns we've worked at at other places, right, are supporting and in solidarity with that, this existing campaign. We'll see where it goes. But the folks who are organizing at this property are going to link into our work into the future um, and are going to be able to inform future campaigns and hopefully build upon this relocation agreement that we get. So the next one will be even better than this one. Um, and it's kind of that small incremental um, in incremental growth, which is like, which is a victory. It's also exhausting. Sure, um, sure. It's not. We we don't have magic bullets, and we don't have magic wands. This is always the challenge for uh, activism. It's maintaining the uh, the energy for the long haul. Um, but it sounds like you you guys are, are doing incredible work, uh, Zachary. As as a young person who lives in Austin and visits other cities and sees this issue in front of you. Uh, when it is when it's a matter of talking to, to people who are struggling to pay their rent, when we see homelessness in front of us, uh, does the work that Basta's doing and what Shoshana's described to you does that does that is that something that could motivate young people like you to get involved and think about these issues? I, I think so. Uh, you mentioned the uh, resemblance to civil rights activism, but to me, it's also uh, it, it also deeply resembles uh, labor activism. Uh, and I think that part of the story of the past few decades has been that we sort of uh, let 
those those institutions uh, that that bring communities together uh, and, and allow them to negotiate for better conditions. We've let those uh, institutions be torn apart um, by profit interests, etc. And, and I think and I think part of the way forward out of this moment of inequality is is to rebuild those institutions. Right, right, within government and outside of government, exactly. too. Right. Uh, yeah. Sure. I would also say yeah. there's the institution like there's also just the communal institutions right like just our churches and just institutions for social cohesion which have broken down and that's one of the reasons i love working with tenants and tenants associations as a lot of that work is about creating um creating groups and Mm -hmm. creating community space and of neighbors knowing neighbors and so i think part of the healing is also just through human connection and being able to see everyone around you as someone um, who is uh, who is part of your community, um, who where you're feeling kind of that love and human connection, and that's something um, which really uh, we're in desperate need of right now. Right. The, the scholarship on social activism is so powerful on this, and echoing what you just said, which is that uh, social movements that that endure tend to be ones where people feel a close interpersonal connection, uh, sort of like soldiers in a military, right? They feel connected to the person next to them. And that keeps them motivated when they're tired and they're disillusioned. And, and it sounds like you're building exactly that model of activism at the community level. Uh, Shoshana, last question. If people want to get involved and want to learn more, uh, where should they go? Um, so they can go to our website, which is www.bastaaustin.org. Um, you can also follow us on social media. Uh, we're probably most active right now on Facebook, and that's at Basta Austin. Um, and we have um, a number of resources also on our, our local eviction protections in Austin and the Eviction Solidarity Network, which we're an anchor of. Um, so if folks are living in Austin, uh, listeners are living in Austin and are concerned about um, potential evictions, uh, definitely check that out. And it has a lot of educational materials um, on uh, what your rights are. And, and what about those not in Austin? Are there are there national entities they can look to or what, where should they go? Um, so we're part, BASA is part of the Right to the City Alliance um, and their Homes for All campaign. Um, I'm not actually sure their website off hand, but you can Google Right to the City Alliance. Um, and there are a number of uh, dozens of groups throughout the country um, who uh, organize uh, the way we do and sometimes slightly differently than the way we do, um, but they're uh, comrades and allies um, in the struggle. And that has a map of all of the different um, local organizations. And and I think, I mean, one thing uh, which we kind of touched on, um, but uh, the struggle with kind of tenants' rights and housing justice activism is that a lot of the issues and the problems are global and national problems, but most of our solutions from a policy standpoint are local solutions. It's about zoning. (laughs) It's about landlord tenant regulation. And so that makes it an even tougher nut to crack. And that's why alliances like Right to the Cities, uh, Homes for All, coalition becomes so important because it's really translocal connecting different local groups who are all experiencing the same thing and creating spaces um, for, you know, us to be able uh, to both uh, share ideas and also to nurture each other. 
um, and to, sure. to learn from each other. Sure, sure. Well, Shoshana, thank you so much for, for all that you do and for sharing these insights with us. And I want to encourage our listeners to follow up and learn more about these issues. This is something that affects us all, whether we are renters or not. And it's also just such an important manifestation of civil rights organizing and labor organizing today, as, as Zachary said. Thank you for joining us, Shoshana. Thank you for having me. Zachary, thank you too for your poem and your insights. And most of all, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.